Hi there. Welcome to Season 3 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and I'm the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We'd also really love your feedback, which you could provide by going to the BertScholl.com contact page and filling out the form. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at But Seriously The Cancer Podcast and on Twitter at But Seriously TCP. And make sure you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash But Seriously The Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Today's guest is Christine Bays. Christine is a musician, pianist, and singer-songwriter, a licensed marriage and family therapist, the founder and executive director of the Yellow Umbrella Organization, an HPV awareness organization. She's one of five women featured in the documentary, Someone You Love, the HPV Epidemic. She's a mac and cheese connoisseur and the mother of the cutest papillon ever, Harold, the Prince of Pickering Wharf. I loved speaking with Christine and felt like we were two peas in a pod, which is likely why she and I just dove right into some pretty vulnerable topics. We ended up speaking for like three hours, so I split this episode into two parts, which ended up working quite well, because in the first part, we speak about her first diagnosis, and in the second part, we speak about her second. Christine has been cancer-free for two years. During this episode of the show, I talk about a childhood sexual assault from my past. For some people with a history of sexual trauma, this can be triggering or reactivating. If this applies to you, please be sure you have the support you need before continuing on with the episode. So I'm really curious about, you say you had a second diagnosis. You had a recurrence. (laughs) Uh, Not a recurrence, so a brand new cancer. Yep, on October 1st, of 2018, I was diagnosed with invasive lobular carcinoma, breast cancer, stage 2B. And how was it discovered? Well, (laughs) uh, yeah, so mine, so the tumor, it was pretty large for for a breast tumor and for not feeling it ever. It was about three centimeters. So about the size of a thumbnail and in my left breast. And so funny story is I slept with my ex-boyfriend. So I had a boyfriend a few years ago and uh, we lived together for a little bit and it didn't work out. And we had been broken up for about a year and we slept together and he didn't tell me that night. He actually came over a couple days later and was like, Baze, do you you remember anything? You know, and I'm like, no, no, no. Because he said something about feeling something, but I was like, you know, just being frisky and like, yeah, you feeling my love, you feeling my tit, you know, whatever. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, but uh, he's like, you know, Baze, I I felt something and we need, let's, let's do this, you know, and his first wife actually had passed away from cancer. Mm. Um, so then he showed me where it was and then I felt it. And we just held each other and sobbed and cried the rest of the night. And then the next morning, you know, I hit up my doctor 
my primary care and went in. He saw me right away and he was like, yes, I feel something. And, you know, thank gosh for being in the area that I am in, in the Boston area. There's excellent medical care and the Mass General system. It saved my life a number of times and mm -hmm. I worked for them. And so either way, I was able to get the mammo very quickly. And then they decided to go ahead and do the ultrasound and needle biopsy. And I don't know, it's like the cervical came out of the blue, you know, I mean, it's just like, I was just going in for my regular pap. It was just like, but going in, you know, to going, I have a symptom. Yeah. I didn't have any symptoms with cervical. I was just going for my, you know, this was like, there's something in my breast. And then knowing what I know, and I've done so much, you know, advocacy work with doctors, et cetera. Um, and I'm a therapist, so I'm pretty good at reading faces and people and et cetera. And I just, I just, I knew, I, I just, I knew. And mm -hmm. so when the, the needle biopsy, you know, came back and they were like, yep. So invasive, the lobular, so it's milk duct and they, we did, you know, all the genetic testing and all of that stuff. There's no breast cancer in my family and cervical is not related to breast in any way. So just like a bingo okay. twice. So I'm lucky in that I'm HER2 negative, but I am estrogen and progesterone positive. And there's another, I'm like, I'm like, gosh, I didn't learn my stuff as much with the breast. I didn't realize that there's like 17 different breast cancers. And mm. I like, and I, like I said, I'm not nearly as well-versed in it, but there is another risk factor that I'm not like the number one, but I'm like the next one in terms of risk. So, um, the positive thing about the estrogen positive is, so they put me on hormone therapy. So, and I do find it ironic that I was, or not so ironic, Notable that I was diagnosed on October 1st and October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Right in mm. time. Ha <laughs> ha. But um, they have me on, you know, hormone therapy. And so I did that for uh, six, seven months, ended up being um, before they went in for the surgery. And because of the risk factor and the genetic stuff, whatever, like they really kind of put it up to me and that the, uh, there is a decent chance that I will be diagnosed again. And so they were like, you know, do you want to take, you know, both and have a double? And this is like, going to sound very superficial of me, but I like my tits and I'm a single woman. I do not have a boyfriend. I do enjoy being with people and I enjoy the feeling. So everyone's like, Beige, you could get some sick knockers. And I'm like, I won't feel the sensation, that, you know? And so I think that most women in my position with this diagnosis, if they had a husband, if they had children, um, and I think if I had a husband or children that I probably, I may have chosen differently, but for where I am in my life right now, you know, I took it all in and I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go with it and I'm going to take some chances. I'm still going to be, you know, accept most things, but now I'm going to choose to keep my breasts and I'm going to have a lumpectomy 
And so they went in and they did the lumpectomy and they didn't get it all. They, uh, the margins were not clean. So they had to go in again, three weeks later, a month later. And then they got it all. And then I had 20 rounds of radiation, mm. but no chemo. So that was, so when they did the surgery, they also took out uh, my sentinel node under my armpit there. Because mm -hmm. that was to see, you know, whether it had gone further. And so I was really terrified of the potential of having chemotherapy. Because I know how sick it made me last time. And yet it's 20 years later, you know, 19 years later. I was 49 when I was diagnosed. So I was 31 at the first one. 49 with the second. Mm. So two times before 50. Woo. <laughs> but, you know, it's come a long way and they're able to really take care of the physical stuff so much better than they used to. Yeah. So they reassured me of that. And, and so then the other thing, again, sounds superficial, but with the chemo that I had before, cisplatin was what I had with my pelvic radiation daily. So not every week I would go in and have the cisplatin. I didn't lose the hair on my head. So, uh, it wasn't that kind of chemo. And I thought all chemos may do it, but it turns out that's not the case. So they mm -hmm. got very thin and dried. I lost all the hair down in my pubic area, of course, which, Hey, I didn't mind because of the radiation <laughs> from the radiation. Mark. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> with this, uh, you know, with breast cancer chemos, you know, that would be part of the deal. And I don't, I didn't want to lose my red curls, you know, and it's like so ridiculous. And if at the end of the day, if they said that I had to, of course I would yeah. have. But in thinking about the possibility, the potential, you know, it's like I, I was really grateful that I was not necessary for me to have chemo. So like at the end of the day with these two separate cancer experiences, so interesting and I'm still digesting like because it's still fairly fresh for me I just so this was last summer that I was in treatments I had my radiation like the month of July of so, 2019 yeah because you had I, the I had the hormone therapy you, so the letrozole yeah. is what I'm on and I'm still on and I will continue to be on that for between five and ten years um, and luckily I tolerate it very well. I'm, I have no problem with it. But so I did that starting right after my diagnosis. I think I started that in, you know, November. And then they had, my surgery was scheduled for May 9th. It was my first surgery of 2019 mm. for the boob. And then when it they didn't get it all, they went back in on the 30th of of. So, and then they got it all. And then I took June to recover from the surgery. And then I had treatments for like the month of July. Hmm. Just something popped into my head, a little side note. So you mentioned earlier, our friend, Rachel. Yes. Rachel Hogan camp. She's been a guest in the podcast. It, it just had me think like, wow. So you were available to her when she had her diagnosis and then she was available to you. And you had your second diagnosis. When she was diagnosed, so as I 
just when we were talking earlier about the caretaker and the people that you love that you're close to. Yeah. Rachel would be the, the person that is closest to me in my heart, you know, that has had cancer. And knowing completely who she is when she told me, I think I was like more angry at the world or the universe or the whatever mm. fucker would do this to someone like her. Hmm. You know, and we think, you know, it's like, oh, well, that one smoked, so she deserves lung cancer. That one, you know, did that. And it's like, none of that is true anyway. And like, when you know that, you know, she just operates from a place of wholeness and goodness and everything that she does and her body's still acted up. Her body's still got cancer. And we joked because I was like, I fucking did this. I was supposed to be the only one to get cancer. What are you trying to rain on my parade? Trying to steal a little (laughs) of my thunder? You know, (laughs) come on, girl, you know. But what was so phenomenal, you know, like as Rachel was going through it, you know, that she could talk to me about the radiation burns, you know, and she could talk to me about the cording in her arm and she could talk to me, you know, about like her, you know, what she was feeling or not feeling. And, um, and I, and she knew I got it because I understood. Yeah. And then when I had to call her (laughs) to say like, guess what? Now I'm jumping on your bandwagon. Mm. Then she literally because she knew, because I, you know, I didn't had breast before. So she, when I had my burns and stuff, then she was like, remember, Baze? I, I had those burns. Actually, I have some pictures, you know, like mm. really and talking about the stretches or the specific things. And then also about, you know, the impact on relationships and how people treat you and whether, you know, it's like, oh, you're out of treatment. Now you're all better. And it's like. Oh, it's just all you're just supposed to be normal again. And Rachel and I were able to really talk about how it doesn't quite happen like that. No, it does not. And I think that is uh, for people who haven't had cancer. I think that is one of the boats that they miss. You know, and it, and again, not to their fault. You know, it's like I don't want them to understand from this way, but that just because you finished your last treatment and you got to ring that bell, which is a wonderful feeling, mm. but your body and your mind and everything has so much healing to do. You know, it's almost like grief. It's like when someone passes and you you go to the wake and the funeral, it's a lot of love and a lot of people are there, but a week out, it's like very few people people will continue to come back and recognize that that pain and loss is only just begun because in some ways that's when it really sinks in. And I think that the after treatment aftermath is something that I've really relied on people like Rachel and, and a few other friends that have had cancer to really understand and go like it's, 
unfortunately, it can be a slippery slope to slip back into a dark place Mm -hmm. or a worried place. And as you were acting out, you know, the what if in your head, like what you're going to say to your son, like with the breast cancer, I was like, holy shit, after all this, this is how it's going to go? Really? Right. I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. You know, I, you know, and then I'm like, yeah, you know what? Cancer ain't got nothing on me. And I just switched it around and I was like, okay, baby, bring it. I dare you. Yeah, nah, I got you. No problem. And that's how I went into every treatment. Like once I got over the diagnosis and everything and, and was well into the hormone therapies, I approached my surgery couple of things I feel like I did very well this time around because um, the first time around I definitely blocked out people as I fell deep into my depression mm-hmm. um, you know distance because I didn't want to see the pain in their eyes so the feel their hurt as they looked at me I because again that knowing that I was causing them pain so I'd rather just push them away and deal with it myself this time I did not do that and I because and the last time I was married and so that having a partner to go to and from appointments, like the thought of doing that alone mm. ter- terrified me. And so I'm very blessed that here in Salem, Massachusetts, where I've now lived for 13 years since um, my husband and I split up, I have this fantastic community of just like amazing creative. The only other place I would live other than Salem is Ithaca. Ithaca hmm. and Salem are very similar creatures. Oh, yeah? I think Salem's a little more wild and witchy, you know, um, yeah. but <laughs> the creative that. energy spirits, it's very similar. And uh, so every single appointment that I had, like I put it out there. I was like, I need, I want someone to go with me. And I, like for all 20 radiation appointments, I had like mm-hmm. 18 different people. A couple of people did it a couple of times, but I would come in my radiation texts are like, who you got here today, base? And I'm like, oh yeah, we got Steve Stone here. We got Heather. We've got, you know, it was really important to be able to feel like I wasn't alone because I think that of the ongoing things, being a single person, unable to bear children with a cancer history and a few other medical, like I said, scares that have happened. And now breast cancer, it's like, well, I'm a barrel of fun. Who's going to want to step into this with me? Here, come on. You know, let's chill, man. I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm entertaining for days, you know, as long as I'm here. And Yeah, not feeling like a safe bet. No, not feeling like a prize for anyone, you know. But my friends and my family have definitely made me feel like a national treasure despite Hmm. that you know what i mean and so that is i am very grateful for um but it's interesting psychologically like for myself in that period between diagnosis and surgery um so i only told you know like a few people i didn't want to i didn't blasted on social media I didn't want to do anything until and I didn't until it came up for the surgery and then I wanted the collective energies and thoughts and prayers from others you know but in the beginning it was like my illness my disease for me only and um 
and I tend to, uh, I, as much as I'm a therapist and I, I'm a fan of looking behind the curtain and in the closet under the rug, you know, sometimes it's hard to do for yourself, what, you know, you can encourage and see in others and, and appreciate. And, um, but I, I did not treat myself well during that time. And I really, um, it's like, you'd think I would know better. I, I started off. Okay. I was like, all right, got to get my tools in order. And I got back on an antidepressant, you know, and I went back to my therapist and, you know, started that process. And then I'm not actually sure what happened, Bert, but I, it was almost like living in denial mm -hmm. for six months. Like it just, it, it messed with my head, like having cancer and having this tumor in my body. And I was just living with it. I'm like, cut the fucker out. I'm like, can't. And they were like, no, we have to shrink it first. We have to shrink it. That's what we're doing. Unless you want a mastectomy. And we'll do it today, you know, or, you know, but you know what I mean? They would, but I was the one that said, no, I want to try to keep it. So it was my own doing, but mm. that's still, um, I, yeah, I, I turned to, you know, the traditional icky coping mechanisms that, you know, people do. And I have an affinity for Jameson. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I can drink, and pretend like stuff isn't there for a few hours anyway, you know, and, um, I did that way too much, you know, and, you know, and I believe in, uh, cannabis and marijuana. And that is one mm -hmm. of the things that medicinally my doctors have given me, um, marijuana adrenobinol in a pill form for my radiation and arthritis for 20 years. And, um, here in Massachusetts, it's legal. And so I do utilize the medicine in that way, but I can recognize when I wasn't using it just for medicine, you know what I mean? So even in that, and I, I want to own that and acknowledge that because I think that, um, you know, as a therapist and as a cancer survivor advocate, you'd think that I would do all the right things. And I think it's really important for people to acknowledge their mistakes and to recognize that even people that know the right thing to do can still have a hard time doing that. And that that's part of the process of learning and, and growing and really looking in the mirror and say, yeah, that's on me. I did that. And look I who behaved you, that way. Yeah. And look who you get to be when the next patient comes in. And they said, I had X, Y, and Z going on. I knew I shouldn't have been doing this, and I was doing it anyway. And you get to look them in, in the eye and say, yeah, well, you're not alone. I'm right there with you. Christine, I don't advertise to anybody. Just about no one knows until now the, every one of you listening to this episode is now going to know as I out myself. After my second diagnosis, and it metastasized my liver. My doc cut out, you know, um, one of, there's, the liver has two lobes, and he cut out part of one lobe, the part that has a gallbladder on it for whatever that matters. But uh, he cut out part of one lobe and then I recovered for like five or six days. And then I had to go stay. He wanted me to stay nearby 
for the first X number of days that follow. They just want to make sure that if anything happens that you're nearby. So I went across, the, I had my surgery in, at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. My doctor was Dr. D'Angelica, amazing guy. Michael D'Angelica, thank you so much, brother. You saved my life. And then Dr. Kemeny, my oncologist. And so I go Shout across, out. yeah, so I go across the bridge and the guy who inspired me, who kicked my ass and got me to go and get my additional opinion, the third opinion at Memorial Sloan Kettering, because I was beaten down. I was done. My wife had left me. I, my wife left me in November. I lost my job in January. I moved out of the house with her and the kids in May and was diagnosed with stage four metastasis to my liver in September. What year was that? 2010 to 2011. Yeah. Dude, that's like, that parallels 2020. You know what that is? Shit year. How the hell did you survive? I look back and I ask myself, you know, I just look, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, it was crazy. I wonder what it was like for my friends. And I ask sometimes, I don't know how honest they want to be, but wow, that's one hell of a thing to uh, talk, talk about the people in your life, you know, carrying the weight and being like, you know, wow, when's, uh, when's Burke going to get a break? I changed my Facebook name to Job. And yeah, people have had it worse than me. You know, I, I know people have had it much worse than me, but that was damn hard. And so all the emotional pain, all the grief of not even really getting to grieve the end of my marriage. I, my doctor, D'Angelica, lets me go. My buddy Brad, he talked to his mom. She let me stay at her place. We both stayed there for like five days on the other side of the river just to make sure I recover. I think the day we got home, maybe the, no, the day that followed, there was a college football game on, you know, one of the, it was in, the surgery was October 28th, I think, so, I don't remember what game it was, but I think, uh, you know, Alabama, Crimson Tide is playing somebody, he and I made a bet, and I asked him to get me a beer, and I had a beer, it's like, dude, you just had your damn liver operated on. Are you? Is there a moron on the earth who is more of a moron than you? No, I actually got Did the they not put that on the discharge papers that you don't drink after you've had liver surgery? I think you'd have to... I kind of figured that was a given. You can't be too bright if you're drinking like uh, you know, a week after you just had liver surgery for a cancer, for a, for a tumor in your liver. Yeah, this knucklehead, Bert Scholl, I had a beer. Now, anyone who can hear this might be judging the hell out of me. And you want to know what? I get it. Bert, you have a kid. What the hell is wrong with you? You have a family. What is wrong? I get it. For me, I was in so much pain. I was in so much emotional pain. When I moved out of the house with uh, my wife and kids, I uh, started drinking. And I was about two years out from... Uh, treatment being over the last time and I was drinking a lot of scotch I was so pissed off and I knew that what the scotch was doing was just turning it down I was so angry I was so fucking angry and in so much pain and I was drinking and I think anger and drinking 
probably didn't uh, help the chances of me not getting a recurrence. Maybe it had nothing to do with it. I don't know. But I had a beer, and I don't know if the alcohol was just a turn off a little bit of the pain or if it was just a defiant fuck you to the whole world. I'm going to go with B. <laughs> you notice how that, you know, the delivery on that one? Yeah. And I've, I've, I've not talked to people about it because it's, it's not something I'm proud of, but life is hard. And sometimes we make decisions that are not in the best interest of ourselves and our loved ones. And I look back now, I'm like, what in the hell? Like, what did that beer do for you? Like, like why? What? Why? What? Like, was was that worth it? You know, like, is that and? But that is the that is where you were at that time. Yep, and it was an expression of telling the world to go to hell. Like, this is big old. Yep, they go f you. This is what I'm getting. I'm dude. You're crushing me. I I got nothing left. Well, you got seven months of chemo coming. You're like, hang on, let me get some more scotch. Yeah. You know, I'm, I get it. Pardon me and while I, I cut off my nose to spite my face. Yeah. It's but real. Again, and I'm sitting it, here. I'm I'm looking for more words. I'm trying to find a way to bring this around. There's no bringing it around. It wasn't a good call. It's what I did, and that's what's up. That's real. That's life being lived in reality that's not you know it, it, it goes as it goes you know exactly and, and you said earlier if you don't mind if i just get on a tear for a bit you oh, know like please <laughs> when rachel got diagnosed you were like excuse me uh-uh you're pissed because we have this ranking system that we somehow believe is real we're totally engaged in it it you know just it, it totally it's got the reins in our minds like you know the reins on a horses you know on a horse got the reins and letting us know, like, oh no, there's. I have a ranking system, and uh, Rachel Hogan Camp is um, above the list. So yes, no, she's, no, she's she's in the blue zone. You yes. know, she's not down here with us purples. She's you know, she's blue. So she's, but yeah. there is no rank when exactly it comes to cancer. And who, there's nothing. Right, and and the people who get it are the people who get it, and that's just it, and. We all make the choices that we make. And this whole, you know, um, who's worthy of getting cancer and who's not, you know, and we like to put cigarette smokers into that with lung cancer. Okay, well, then put me in there too because I had a beer, you know, seven yeah. days after surgery. You can throw me, throw me right in there too. I've done yeah. it all. Yeah, we, we, essentially shaming people for life choices that they made life is hard life is hard like the, we are a world there's so many parts of the world that uses a drug um, of some kind to pacify life be it alcohol coffee cigarettes uh, and then all the things that I don't know anything about and marijuana and then hard drugs why people do all this because life is hard and we're just trying to, to numb it a little bit, make it a little bit easier. 
I think that people choose to, you know, to numb it because they're afraid to talk about it, which brings us back, to, you know, to this conversation and having the real, you know, the, the depths of the experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it was when I was sh in the shallow, when I was in the shallow zone treading water prior to my breast cancer surgery, I just didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go to the deep end. I didn't. I just tried to like kind of operate like everything was normal. <laughs> Everything's fine. I just have this extra fucking marble in my boob. It's fine. It's fine. Gulp, gulp. It's fine. Gulp, gulp. It's fine. Yeah. It was so far from fine. And, you know, that huh, big learning, you know, huge learning for me. And, you know, got, I schooled myself, but, you know, friends and family and doctors also all like universally were like, yo, you're spinning out of control. You got some choices and you gotta choose, you know? And so, you know, I did like dial it on back. And I think, and the interesting thing, my medical oncologist said to me, cause my drinking dramatically slowed down after my surgery and then also during my radiation like it, it it never returned to where it was prior to surgery and she said she sees that a lot even in people who aren't drinkers like I am a casual drinker like even no matter what but this out of control drinking um she said it's actually quite common she sees it for people who have this type of thing where it's like all right, you got this issue, but we're not going to do anything about it until next year. Mm. Hang in there. She said, this is very typical. And it really actually, it, it validated my experience and it made me feel a little less guilty about my emotional reaction and about my behavior, you know, and that it was somewhat normalized that yeah, you're living with this thing and a lot of people choose to deal with it in different ways. And so that's, and then she was glad to hear that post-surgery and radiation, it was like, no, because then I was doing something about it. I think there's the, you know, you're going to the doctor every day for radiation treatments. You're seeing your people, you're fighting the cancer, they're cutting it out, they're examining you. But then when the treatment stops, that's also like, I remember at the end of the first one, it was mm. like, well, now what? Crickets. And that's when the depression hit for me. I was fine through it. And then once everything stopped, then the gravity of the situation hit. And then I was like depressed. With this one, it was the, oh, you've got the thing. But you just hang on and wait. And that just didn't work for me. And then the doing, then I'm like, okay, do, do, do good. You know? And so to be a year on the side has been... Yeah, it sounds like the post-treatment thing we experience, and if you're not a survivor and you're listening to this, what's very common is for when treatment ends and you stop going in every day or every week and you have three months before you have your next test, it's just crickets. You've been surrounded by people whose job it is to keep you alive and keep you emotionally well and physically well as you go through this treatment to save your life. And when it's done, you go home and it's crickets and you feel alone. Many people just feel alone and vacant and there's a void 
and there's just this hole that isn't being filled. And it's, there's no transition. It's cold turkey. It, it's, it, that's just it. And it sounds like you had that experience prior to your surgery. Yeah. I didn't think of it like that, but that's that, you know, it's like has in talking about this, cause this is my first, you know, podcast. And it is my first time talking about breast cancer actually mm. with all the thousands of gigs I've done regarding my, my hooch. <laughs> this is my first time actually like going and, you know, thinking about my process and how I dealt with it. And that is what it was like because it was like, horrible diagnosis and then you meet your medical oncologist your surgical oncologist your radiation oncologist you know you meet all the you have all these appointments right in the beginning the mammogram and the pet scan and the biopsy and all the things so it's all chaotic for like the first couple three weeks month but then it was six months of crickets of like okay we'll we'll catch you in six months like just knowing that i had a tumor in my boob the thing that i really i recognize because as we're talking like it is so interesting because it's my first time thinking and processing the breast cancer thing it's like my period of that waiting period you're it is that was my cricket period and it's this place where it's like you know that you're doing your this thing inside of yourself is happening, but there's nobody around you anymore. Like, so when with the, I'm trying to think of like how to say it. So like when we're all in it, we're going, going, going. It's like every day off to the doctor, every day I got someone by my side going, what's up, Baze? Hey, you got this today. Let's do it. Boom, boom. And then you're done. And then it's like that silence, the crickets. And then you are only left with yourself and knowing that your body just attacked you so you had to attack your body and nobody else is there to help at that point because yeah. you've been doing 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 and then you're just left with your body and your thoughts and i think that's for most people after cancer it's like whoa then what like look so with me with this breast cancer that initial diagnosis and all of the chaos that surrounds that and surrounded it for me with meeting all these different oncologists, medical, surgical, radiation oncologists, having the PET scan and the tests and the hormone and the genetic testing and all that stuff. So like the first month was crazy and it was like, okay, all these people, blah, blah, blah. but then they're like, okay, take this pill and we'll see you in six months but the tumor was still in my boob. And I think that's why I lost it because I had the knowledge of all this, but I was alone for six months instead yeah. of, and that's why like once then I was like, okay, I got to get ready for surgery. Surgery, now it was happening every day, then I was fine. Then I wasn't drinking my face off. I wasn't drowning my fears and sorrows because I was facing my fears because I was actually doing something. And I think we're onto something here. Mm -hmm. That really makes so much sense to me now. I'm like, there's a reason why I lost my mind. And so 
when my oncologist, Dr. Mulvey said, yeah, bays are not the only one that, you know, we see a lot of this where people maladaptive behaviors during this like stall zone. It's like you're in limbo, mm. just waiting. So of course, if you're going to lose your mind, I guess it makes sense because you got cancer, but you're not doing anything about it. I could just touch my tumor anytime I wanted to. It's like, you want to fuck with your mind, play with your head. Oh, just here, touch my tumor. Want to feel what a tumor? Like, no wonder yeah. I lost my mind, even though I know better. Well, you know, who wants a therapist who's never messed up? <laughs> yeah, definitely not me, because I really find that the flaws and the mistakes and the, the imperfections are what makes us unique and allow us the opportunity to like really hone our own individual beauty in the way that we shine through those things. These specific experiences, they're, these are specific to me. And so it is my choice what I do with this information that I've gathered from this mistake and this scar, this experience. I actually wrote a song, it's called Scars to Stars. And my hysterectomy scar, I'm, I, I'm not gonna flash anything, but I'm gonna show you. <laughs> so actually, so it goes from like here to here, right? Mm -hmm. And so, boom, and then I had tattoo. Nice. of a star put there because I believe that, you know, your scars are beautiful. And so what I ended up doing after I was diagnosed with breast cancer, before I went in, like in the early days, I, so this song is meaningful to me, you know, and then I'm like, well, I'm going to put a star on every scar on my body. <laughs> and so I did. Cause so the lung surgery I had, I have three different points of impact where they went in. And so I have a star in my armpit, on my back, and like right under here. For my laparoscopic surgery, they went in right here. So I got one here and one here. Mm -hmm. I had a scar from when I was in college and I cut my finger with a glass. So I did put one there too. But you know what I mean? So that the concept of something that was potentially ugly or, or devastating or, you know, a reminder of, a pain or a hurt to turn that around and make it a symbol and a sign of the beauty and the strength. And, you know, it's like, yes, I got a star for that project. <laughs> you know what I mean? Good job, Baze. You get a star. Boom. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm my own astrological constellation now. <laughs> and it's unique because I'm the only one with it. I was going to say that you are the Bayes constellation now. That's it. You can look up in the sky and try to find me. <laughs> it reminds me of a Kintsugi, which is where I think it's a Japanese process where a broken piece of pottery, let's say, is then fixed and filled in and then painted with gold paint. So, so the gold gives, fills in the cracks. Yeah. What is the name of it again? I think it's Kintsugi. I can look it up while we're talking. Kintsugi. Oh, but I'm on, okay, I'll look it up over here. 
That sounds, yes, that's exactly, as you started to say it, I'm like, oh, wait, I've heard of this before. And that's exactly it. Like you take the broken pieces and. Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with lacquer dusted or mixed with powdered gold, silver, or platinum. You make it pretty. You make yes. it broken beautiful. And that's what's the most beautiful part is the part that broke and healed. It just made me think of uh, when you were saying that that dark, dark, dark year of 2010 and like your broken pieces from that year, do you feel you've been adequately able to cement back, fill in the cracks as you pieced yourself back together? Do you feel like you've got your shining luster? Hmm. I do. Thank you for asking. What happened is after that, and I would say I completely fell apart or as my teacher, Ajashanti, says, you know, my life fell together. Mm. In retrospect, I can say it became a journey of healing all the old wounds, digging up all the old buried issues and working with them and through them. Uh, I have, I've been in one relationship since 2010. You know, I was intimate with different women, but only dated one person and we're no longer dating. And so looking at that, you know, one could say, you know, well, that area is not full and shiny and complete. But like I said, in retrospect, I can see that there's been this process of unpacking everything from the past, not by choice. Like I go through a series of things just telling you how things just landed in my lap. Like, okay, this one's next. Okay, this one's next. Okay, this one's next. You're like, okay, up to bat. Okay, up to bat this way. Yeah. Okay, I've got a glove. Okay. So I get... Holy, wow. Yeah, and I love my life. I love, you know, living a life from the choice of... Uh, how would I say this? When I was diagnosed the first time in 2007, a month after, you know, after a month of my head spinning, myself crying and screaming and being terrified, it suddenly hit me that the diagnosis was a gift. And whether I live or die, this was a gift. And the first gift I saw was like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to live my ass off. And I'm going to be the real me and I'm going to be the truly expressed me. And that's been, you know, years of unpacking and, and freeing myself in uh, so many ways. And when I was going through that, you know, when that 10 month series of events happened that just took me out at the knees, I knew that I was going to come out on top. I didn't know how. I didn't know if I was going to live through it. I knew that I was going to grow from it. I just refused to not be grateful for this life. And that's not a choice I made. It's just a part of myself I realized was just forever standing up and, and maybe knocked back down, but was always going to come back up. Like, I'm going to be grateful for this life because I have to. 
because I won't do it any other way. And I've gone to a therapist, you know, I was at, at a therapist a couple of years ago, not feeling so grateful, being, you know, going in this, uh, you know, I was in this dungeon in my mind I couldn't get out of. You know, when I was six years old, about three minutes of my life, this guy sat down next to me and felt me up, you know, sexually assaulted me. And when I was in my late 40s, 48, 49 years old, it all came up and said, I want to be addressed now. It's time. And that was huge that I was working with a somatic sex educator and a therapist. And it was a huge amount of work. And, you know, when I realized that that sexual assault had had the reins of my life for, you know, 43 years, because I was 49, happened when I was six, I was sobbing uncontrollably. Uh, I was in a class with my teacher, uh, Linda Ruth, an astrologer, and Rachel and some other folks. And when I really got that, like this thing has been steering aspects of my life for my entire life, I just fell apart sobbing. And they all came around me and, you know, were there with me. And in that moment, you know, there was no gratitude. It was just like, what the hell kind of life is this? What, what, are you kidding me? And now I see that I can't look back at what I didn't do for the 46 years, 43 years. What I can do is recognize that I had this whole thing about, you know, I didn't kick, bite, and scream. I told him no multiple times and finally got up and ran across and found my mom, you know, ran across the house and found my mom. But I spent 46 years beating myself up for doing what I believed was freezing. And as a result of work oh. with my, yeah, as a result of the work with my therapist, what I realized was there's fight, flight, and freeze. I have it in my mind that I froze. And so that's all that matters. So anytime I froze in my life, I hated myself. I was disgusted with myself. I'm like, that means I'm a coward. That means I'm weak. That means I'm not a man. That means I'm a pitiful human being. And now what I get is that sometimes I freeze. And sometimes I fight and I'm your fiercest advocate, fiercest advocate. There's not a person you'd want around other than me. But like when I fish with my kid, as we fish all the time, there's times he'll need me to do something and or I'll be trying to tell him what to do. And instead, I'm just blurting out a bunch of words that make no sense. And I can't act or think properly because I kind of freeze. I just get stuck. So what I finally said to him one day after working with his therapist, I told him one day when we were fishing, after I did it, like he wanted me to hand him the rod because we were on a charter fishing trip. And he's like, Papa, you know, I said, yeah, it's your fish. So I wanted to give him the rod, but I was so panicked by this huge fish on the line that by the time I handed him the rod, the fish had snapped off. Now, who knows if it may have happened anyway. But my point to that is I looked at my kid and I said, hey, kiddo, so here's the thing. Sometimes your dad freezes. That's part of who I am. Sometimes I fight. And sometimes I run like hell. But this is part of who your father is. There's going to be times we're going to be fishing. I want you to know we're going to be fishing. And something's going to happen. And I'm going to speak to you. And it's going to be a bunch of gibberish and a bunch of nonsense. And I'm probably not going to respond to the things you say. And I'll get frustrated with you. So I told him that, and one time we were fishing, and I wanted him, I caught a, you know, a nice trout, rainbow trout, and I wanted him to take a picture of it. So what I wanted to say was, will you back up 
around to the corner of the boat so I can walk through this skinny place and turn around and stand in the sun, then you can take the photo. That would be the best way to do it. What I did instead was I looked at him and I said, "Uh, what are you doing? And he just started laughing because he's like, Papa's in freeze mode right now. So Christine, like I now have freedom in my life to freeze. I get to accept and celebrate that who I am is exactly who I am because of everything that has happened and hasn't happened in my life. And I couldn't be the me that I love if I didn't go through what I went through. We don't wish that upon anybody. And of course I wish it didn't happen. But part of me is like, it, it, it happened. I, to wish it didn't happen would be, have me not be me. And when I got that, I freeze. And that's not something to be ashamed of. I said, oh my gosh, now I know what loving myself is. Loving myself is getting that there was never anything to fix. You're not broken. I'm not broken. I am exactly who I am, and I come exactly in the package I'm in, and I do what I do, and that's what makes me me. So, yes, I. that was the very long answer to your question. Like, yeah, I feel like it's where I've come since all of that. You know, that really was uh, when I had my marriage end and moved out and lost a job and got diagnosed again. That was really, it's like the universe said to me, okay, you got cancer the first time, so you could truly be yourself and live your life. And you did pretty good, but you're still like trying to put a cat into a cardboard box. You got all four paws clawing into it. You won't. So let's see. Let's try this. Let's see if this will get your attention. And it got my attention. We'll give you a little bit of this. And that's a really (laughs) yeah shortly after that I started like meditating every day my occasional practice became a a regular practice meditation has transformed my life more than almost anything it's phenomenal what it's provided and all of who I have become is a result of losing you know most of what I thought mattered to me and I got to start over and rebuild and become who I really want to be so I'm doing great (laughs) (laughs) you're like and that's why I'm doing great (laughs) damn right you are dude I mean that's I ache for these conversations like I Mm. literally I love really feeling like I'm trying to find another word other than connected, but I just feel like, I don't know. I just feel like I just made like a very good friend, you know, because, you know, thank you for sharing with me, you know, cause that's, that is a lot. And I can tell that you've gone through it. You didn't go around it. You went through it. You did the work. You know what I'm saying? You're not a poser. You fucking have done it. And that's that's inspiring. Mm. And it's, you know, like motivational. You know, because mot- meditation is something that I continue to struggle with. I have yet to find that. But, you know, I, I add a yet to the end of my sentences, you know, because I, I, too, hope to get there and, you know, experience that kind of peacefulness and awareness and evolution through it 
you know, and when you said that you went on the seven day silent thing, just saying that right now, I, my belly got tight and my heart started racing a little mm. bit. Just the thought of going on a seven day, no speaking. I, that would that must have been remarkable. And wow. By day two, I was like, what the hell kind of stupid idea did I come up with that this was going to be good? I was like, get me. I hate this. This is the worst decision ever made in my life. By the end, I was like, please don't let this ever end. I want to say, I wow. thank you for the acknowledgement. Oh, wow. I, I really feel blessed that I'm a person who chooses to go through it and not around it. I don't know why I'm that kind of person. And I don't feel really responsible for it all i know is like that's who i am and i'm grateful for that i feel pretty lucky and as i tell you about my life experience one could say you don't sound so lucky to me bro <laughs> but <I've, laughs> exactly <laughs> but i feel lucky and yeah like you know we'll, we can talk off the uh, off thread we can talk off camera off mic about meditation you know i'll share with you what what i've learned or what got me interested but yeah listening to that teacher and having him explain to me the benefit of going and doing a silent retreat that was my motivation to do it because there's no way in hell i'd ever do that in some kind of crazy nonsense like that go not talk to anybody we go meditate for seven days not talk to anyone i'm like yeah right dude not a chance and i've since done two with him and i did two five-day semi-silent retreats with my other teacher Amoda ma and it, I just love it now. Now I can't get enough of it. If I was, uh, if I had my say, I'd be doing it a lot. <laughs> but I wow. want to, I'm going to acknowledge you and thank you for what you brought to this conversation. Like just completely unveiled. You just, just, you know, completely, you just bared yourself naked in front of everyone to give them the gift of knowing what this experience was like for you, the privilege of knowing what this experience was like for you, where you struggled, where you failed, where you succeeded, where you rocked it unbelievably, holy cow, <laughs> touring the country in a damn tour bus because you decided you're going to do that benefit show. I mean, yeah, dude. I feel like I just made it. I don't feel like nothing. I know I just made a friend in you. And I'm so glad Rachel introduced us and got us on this podcast together. And I love you. And... You know, I love you too. She wasn't, <laughs> she was not wrong when she said, Baze, I think you're going to love him. No, and no. I'm like, I'm going to text her after this and be like, uh, girlfriend, you are correct. And I look forward to meeting you when I go to Ithaca at some point, when we are beyond all of this madness of the quarantine and Woo. COVID, you know, that's the, the appreciation. That's the other part of, feeling this connected with my new friend that one of the biggest, you know, I've lost this, I think, and challenges for most people are, is this, you know, needing to disconnect physically from people and how to remain feeling connected while staying physically distant. And you, my friend, have shown me how to break that barrier because, like, we just had the most intimate conversation and exchange. Like, my heart feels full, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like, like how I felt 
why did I went to that crying um to that cancer group you know mm. and it was just like like oh my god like somebody gets it and understands and it's like I I definitely feel like I've had like a wonderful therapeutic <laughs> session with you I don't know if I should send you a check in the mail <laughs> But <laughs> your check is having uh, given, uh, having devoted all your time to this podcast. Um, I, I, well, thank you so much for inviting me, and, and seriously, thank you for creating this space. I look, I have not listened yet. I kind of, I wanted to go in without any ideas, mm. so I could just be blank. But now, I have the idea, so I'm gonna go through. And that is, this is a gift. Hmm. What you're doing. And like you said earlier, that it's just your natural, it's just, it's easy for you. And it's very clear that this is like your gift to the world, you know, to yourself and to others. So I thank you for letting me share in that. You rock. You're welcome. I get it. I got it. I, uh, I get it. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, we have found so many ways to create disconnect with each other in this world. In 2020 in the United States, there's so many ways to disconnect and to, and to separate and to feel against one another. And I'm way more committed to creating connection. And the more each one of us is willing to take off the mask, even for just a little bit. And I'm not talking about the COVID-19 mask. I'm talking I know about you're not. <laughs> the, the one we hide behind. I mean, you got to wear a mask sometimes out in the world, you know. But when we can just take off our masks and just let ourselves be seen, you know. Damn, it feels good, doesn't it? Emotionally naked with one another and not have to pretend it's a, it's a real privilege. And I feel as lucky as you do that I get to be a part of this conversation. Yeah. So thank you again. My survivor brother from another mother you are. <laughs> That's what you are. <laughs> and when my mom hears this, speaking of mom, she hears that I had a beer after my, she's going to be pissed. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and Mama Bays is gonna say to me, "Oh yeah, I knew you were drinking too much before your before my surgeries." Oh. And, uh, but here we are, being human and owning it, and moving forward, and taking the love we give, we get, we give, we get, we give, we get. That's the circle, right? That's the circle. All right, you have a beautiful day. Thanks so much. You too. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. Later. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much.
for all you do. See you all in the next episode, and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as the Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.